Well, a very warm welcome to you. If um, you're new here this evening, just exploring Christianity. Uh, if you've not met me, my name's Mike. I'm a curate at the church, which basically means Philip's apprentice. Um, and that's why I can't get this stand to work properly. It's now sorted, though, so, uh, so we can begin. Um, so tonight, how can I be sure? That's the question that Abraham is wrestling with in tonight's passage. Well, if um, you're wondering, how can I be sure that my obedience to God will be rewarded? That's what we're going to be thinking about. If you were here last week, you'll remember how Philip began our new sermon series called Abraham and Sons, starting in Genesis 12. And it's here where the Lord calls Abraham, as he's known at this point in the story, to leave his country, to leave his father's household, and to go to the land to which God shows him. This is the challenge that God sets before Abraham. And if he obeys, he's promised a reward. God tells Abraham, if you obey me, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and in turn, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So at the grand age of 75, Abraham obeys the Lord. He takes his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, the possessions and people he's acquired in Haran, and they all set off heading south for the land of Canaan. Well, subsequently, Fallon in Canaan causes Abraham and his household to travel even further south into Egypt before he returns, separates from Lot, and settles by the Oaks of Mamre, which are 20 miles to the west of the Dead Sea. And now, several years later on, immediately before our passage, four marauding kings have defeated five local Canaanite kings in battle, carrying away the spoils of victory, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. So when Abraham gets wind of the attack, he heads off north in hot pursuit, defeats the bad guys, and carries back home all the stolen possessions and people, including his nephew. Well, naturally, the five defeated Canaanite kings are very grateful to Abraham for returning their people and possessions. And by way of thanking him, the king of Sodom wants to give Abraham a reward. He wants to reward him with some of the spoils of war. However, interestingly, Abraham refused to accept this offer of reward because of an oath with the Lord. And it's at this point that we now pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15. And it seems that Abraham's had a chance to take stock of his circumstances. And it's left him feeling glum. Let's face it, it's a number of years since God first promised to bless Abraham by making him into a great nation. And the two major ingredients that are needed to fulfill God's promise are still missing. Despite their best efforts, Abraham and his wife Sarai still have no children of their own. And his nomadic existence means he still doesn't own any land. God's promise to make Abraham into a great nation looks far from coming true at this point in time. So Abraham's starting to wonder, how can I be sure that God's promise will come true? Why bother journeying all this way in obedience to God's call if it doesn't seem to yield the promised rewards? Abraham starts to think to himself, maybe I simply would have been better off accepting the king of Sodom's offer. After all, at least then I'd have something to show for my travels. 
perhaps as we begin to look at this passage tonight, you too are familiar with asking the question, how can I be sure of the God, of God? If you're new here this evening or just starting to explore the Christian faith, maybe you're wondering why it's worth trusting Jesus when there seem so many other ways of getting rewards and satisfaction in life. Or if you've journeyed as a Christian for a while, perhaps sometimes you doubt whether following Jesus is really worth all the hassle. Why bother to tithe? Why not sleep around like they seem to do in all the glossy magazines? Why not put your own interests first? Why put your reputation on the line and invite somebody to our guest Sunday services in two weeks on Sunday's time? What assurance is there that your trust in God will merit any reward? If any of these questions resonate, I'm confident that this passage will speak directly to you tonight. Because we're going to see how God answers Abraham's how can I be sure And in doing so, we're going to discover a God who is more intimate, more tender, more faithful, more generous, and more loving towards his people than perhaps we have ever been ready to acknowledge or believe. So shall we get going? If you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, page 15 and verse 1 of chapter 15, you can follow along with me. There's also a batting order which I've got in your news uh, sheets, which is ridiculously simple. Um, But uh, here we go. What I want us to do, first of all, is to note that in verse 1 in our NIV Bibles that you've got in front of you, it's not well translated from the Hebrew. If you look carefully uh, down at the bottom of the page at the footnotes A and B, Uh, you'll see that the better translation that the other Bible versions use. So in verse 1, God's opening words go right to the core of Abraham's concerns, speaking into the area where Abraham most needs to be assured. He tells Abraham not to be afraid, not in the sense of being frightened, but rather don't be downcast, because using the correct translation, I am your sovereign, your reward will be very great. God assures Abraham, I am your true king and you are right to hold out and trust that I am going to be the one to reward you. God comes alongside Abraham in relationship. The God who calls Abraham is not one who demands cold-hearted obedience with no offer of encouragement along the way. Rather, the God Abraham is learning to trust invites him into a two-way conversation letting Abraham air his concerns before reassuring him that the promised blessing associated with becoming a great nation will come true. So let's see how God addresses Abraham's first how can I be sure question. How can I be sure of my offspring? To which God promises Abraham a son. In verse 1, it's almost as if God is opening up a conversation with Abraham in order to let Abraham vent off steam. So in verse 2, when Abraham comes back at God, he lends out his pent-up frustration with God's ways. What reward can you possibly give me, Lord, since Sarai and I can't conceive, and the one who is due to inherit my estate is my servant Eliza of Damascus? In other words, how can I become a great nation when I haven't got any children of my own? Abraham is on the verge of giving up hope. 
Abraham has been carrying around his name, which actually means exalted father, for the past 75 years. And he still has no natural children of his own. Every time someone calls Abraham by name, it's like a cold knife to the heart, mocking him, reminding him of his unfulfilled dreams. Abraham, the exalted father, is feeling very low. So here, rather than rebuke Abraham for his honest outburst, God responds tenderly. He restates his promise to Abraham, this time with greater clarity, assuring him that he will have a son from his own flesh and blood. What's more, to remove any doubt, Abraham is then instructed to look up to the sky and count the stars as if that were possible. For so shall his offspring be. God reassures Abraham that he and his offspring are still central to God's great plan to bless the world. Well, it must have been a dazzling night because Abraham's hope is restored and it's the pick-me-up Abraham needs to get back on track with God. And so we come to one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, which is repeated four times in the New. Verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham trusted that God would provide him with a son and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word righteousness means the state of being acceptable, of being justified before God. Before a holy God. Despite the unlikely circumstances, this encounter with God left Abraham fully convinced that God was still able to provide him with a son and heir. And so Abraham was justified before God because he took God at his word and believed in the promise of a son. This is a prime example of while Abraham is marked out as a hero of the faith, even when, humanly speaking, the odds look stacked against him, he walks by faith and not by sight. So what lessons of assurance can we personally take away from Abraham's interaction with God in the first six verses of chapter 15? Well, first, it's probably worth us just stopping uh, and me stopping you having any illusions of grandeur. I need to state the obvious. We are not central to God's plans in the same way that Abraham was. God called Abraham at a particular time for a very particular purpose. But what we can be sure of is that God's character remains the same. God is still a about the business of justifying a people he loves in order that they might be blessed and be a blessing to others. And this includes you and me. But whilst Abraham was justified by God for looking forward in faith to the promise of a son, today we are justified by God by looking back to Abraham's greater son, Jesus, who was born a Jew. Jesus, who became flesh some 2,000 years ago. The Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament and believed upon in the New. Jesus is the unique Son of God. The one he had always purposed to be the epicentre and fulfilment of all his plans to bless the world. 
It is through our faith in Jesus and his resurrection that God now credits us with righteousness. This is God's blessing to all who believe. So when we find ourselves giving up hope, doubting God's methods, mocked for holding out to our Christian faith and beliefs, or even tempted by unhealthy earthly rewards, one way to get ourselves back on track and to know the assurance of God is to look back at the historical evidence for Jesus there, detailed in the Bible and thousands of extra-biblical sources. Yes, like Abraham, we're still called to walk by faith and not by sight. But unlike Abraham, we have far more hard evidence to illuminate our journeys. Not least the Holy Spirit. Well, I also want to pick up briefly on one of the other points that the text raised. And as I've been personally chewing this passage and reflecting on this passage in my mind, it's left me thinking, if I truly want to experience the rewards of a relationship with God... I need to be more honest with him about how I'm feeling. It seems to me when I'm struggling in life or faith, rather than press on regardless, I need to give up my British stiff upper lip, grin and bear it approach. I'm very ready to confront God with what's actually on my heart. Yes, there's definitely a place for a holy fear of God, but I don't think that's really the issue for many of us here in Claygate who are afraid to offend God by really wearing our heart on our sleeves. You don't have to get too far into the Psalms of David before you hear him pouring out his heart in an honest lament about his circumstances. So why am I so reticent to do likewise? Perhaps it's because I've not really appropriated the full extent of God's love, his extravagant love for me the tender love of his father's heart towards his children, who he wants to bless. What about you? It might be that you previously talked to God about a particular need for years, but because it didn't seem to become a reality for some time, you simply got into the habit of believing it will never happen. This passage assures us that God's delays aren't always denials. If it's within God's will, then you can rest assured God will see it through. So perhaps if you feel in need of assurance, you'd be better served by taking a leaf out of Abraham's book and being more real with God. Just like Nicky Gumbel says on the Alpha Course, how expectant are you that there are times when God simply wants to come alongside you and give you a spiritual hug? Will you let him assure you in this way? But now we must move on to look at Abraham's second how can I be sure question. How can I be sure that I will possess the land? To which God promises Abraham a seal. And no, I don't mean the blubbery type that hang around the north shores of the UK eating fish. Um, I mean a seal in the covenant sense. And as we explore this seal, you're going to want to pay attention and prepare to have your mind blown. 
The first thing you're going to want to know is what on earth is going on in this strange ritual involving a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, a dove and a young pigeon. To our modern ears, this all sounds rather strange. Well, happily, the Bible lets us know a bit more about what's going on in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 34. See, once upon a time, before big city lawyers were employed to dot the I's and cross the T's of formal contracts, when two powerful parties wanted to make a formal agreement with each other, the sealing of the contract, along with the terms and conditions for breaking it, were physically enacted out. This often took place between two kings where they wanted to agree terms of peace. When the deal had been reached, the contract was sealed by gathering together the aforementioned animals, cutting them in two and lining them up side by side to form a channel in the middle through which you could walk. The two kings would then walk together between the carcasses to seal their agreement. This was, in effect, their way of signing on the dotted line. However, should one of the kings break their promise, the dead carcasses were there as a warning sign of what they could expect to happen to them. In effect, each king was placing a curse upon himself should he renege on the deal. So if we return to Abraham's question How can I be sure my offspring will take possession of the land? In verses 9 to 21, God answers Abraham's question by setting up a very special contract. When Abraham had arranged the dead animals according to the legal custom, he falls into a a deep sleep and thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. Then in verse 13, God assures Abraham his promise will come true by revealing the details of his plan. God reveals to Abraham an overview of Israel's future. Abraham's offspring will endure 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after which there'll be an exodus where they'll come out to defeat the Amorites and inherit the promised land. These are the terms of the covenant which God is holding himself to account. So now they've been spelled out, it's time for the agreement to be sealed. In verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Well, if you were here last year for our series on Exodus, you'll remember how the presence of God is symbolised by fire. In Moses' encounter at the burning bush, in the pillar of fire that led Israel to safety through the Red Sea, and as a sign of God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence is marked by fire. Well, here again, the smoking firepot with a blazing torch that passes between the animal pieces tells us that God himself has made a covenant with Abraham, just as it says in verse 18. God has promised Abraham that should his offspring fail to possess the land, that God himself will become subject to the curse of the covenant. The immortal God has promised to give up his immortality and become like the carcasses to die should he break his promise to Abraham. Now that is some hefty guarantee. In fact, it's all the assurance Abraham needs because if God is the all-powerful God he claims to be, it should come as no surprise that he's perfectly able to fulfill 
his end of the deal. However, there's something even more remarkable going on that you need to see. Because God might be perfect in his plans to bless the world, but the people he's chosen to reveal his love and justice through aren't. Abram and his offspring are a sinful people, prone to disobey God, just like you and me, as we discover later in our series. So now I want you to see from verse 17 how only one party passes through the carcasses. It's God alone who passes through the carcasses and Abraham is nowhere to be seen. Only one conclusion can be drawn. It's that God loves Abraham and his offspring so much that he's not willing to let them bear the curse of the covenant should they be disobedient to God's plan. When God passes through the carcasses alone, he commits himself to bear the curse Abraham and his offspring deserve if they fail to fulfill their part of God's plans to bless the world. God is committing himself to give up his own immortality and die should they stuffle as well. Is this ringing any bells? Amazingly, There it is, the pattern of gospel salvation laid out right here in Genesis chapter 15. Fast forward 1,500 years to Mark chapter 15, where thick darkness comes over the land as Jesus is hanging on a cross. After Jesus breathes his last breath, the Roman centurion watching on, who sees how Jesus died, stands in front of Jesus' corpse and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to for his own advantage, rather he took on flesh like ours and became obedient to death on the cross for our sake. And so, in the words of Isaiah, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Though we have failed to demonstrate God's love and justice, God in Jesus took the curse of the covenant we deserve upon himself in order to set us free from the penalty of death. When we look to Jesus for our reward, we know he has done everything necessary to make us right with God. Jesus is the seal of our assurance that we are forgiven all our sins and will receive the promised blessing of an eternal life. This is the territory which God gives us to possess. Peace with God is the reward of our faith. The joy of being in a relationship with the author of salvation who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you know this assurance this evening? Is there an area of your life which you're ashamed of? A guilt that you just can't seem to set yourself free from? Well, now is the time to let Jesus set you free 
to receive the promised blessing of God's pardon and his peace. How will you respond to God's salvation plan for the world tonight? To God's salvation plan for you? Let me pray.